Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend, Charles Henderson Jr. Oh man, this is such a great episode. So Charles grew up in Tuckahoe, New York. He went from being a teenage heroin addict and high school dropout to becoming a Harvard graduate with an MBA in general management. His life experience inspired him to work as a change agent, serving as the executive director, co-founder, educator, and executive coach for Heroin to Harvard an organization that transforms managers into leaders through active training and executive coaching. His work is anchored in research on emotional intelligence, social intelligence, rational intelligence, and behavioral economics. Charles's professional experience includes work with leaders at Citibank, Standard Bank, the World Bank, International Finance Corporation, and Nike in the U.S., Africa, Asia, and Europe. Charles currently resides in South Africa and spends his time between Johannesburg and New York. Prior to his time in South Africa, Charles worked as a risk analyst with J.P. Morgan Chase on Wall Street. This episode is just one that is near and dear to my heart because Charles and I explore this idea of imposter syndrome and what drives us. And Charles had an experience with my father that was pivotal for him. And it's just, it's just a beautiful walkthrough of what can happen when we get sober, when we get help, and also talking about how we can show each other our humanity and, and honesty and how that removes all the barriers that are normally up between two people, prestige, achievement, money, whatever, status, all those things and how that can that can be melted away and uh, substances are the great equalizer and this is this is a perfect example of that. So Charles is an incredible man and is doing incredible work and I just was so grateful that we found time to be able to speak and uh, coordinate with him in South Africa. So without further ado, I give you my friend, Charles Henderson Jr. Episode 98, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Flies on the wall. Flies on the wall to make make sure I don't say anything that gets me canceled. Mm. <laughs> you have to be careful. We are we are in oh, that cancel I'm the culture. Worst. My goodness. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I it's, I get so nervous when I'm recording anything live. I'm like, I'm going to be canceled immediately. You know, I, immediately. I don't worry in South Africa, but every time I have to deal with the Americans, mm-hmm. I, because I'm in South Africa, everybody's relaxed down here. Yeah. So I, sometimes I'll be talking to my my business partners on the U.S. side. 
And they'll say something like, Charles, you know, you can't say that, right? You, you can say that yeah. with us, but you can't say that, right? That's, oh, yeah. really? I can't say that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a whole other, it's a whole other thing over here and it's terrifying. So, okay, let's get this party started. All right. I have your, your notes. So first and foremost, I just want to start. Uh, oh, I know what I want to start off with. So I want to start off with, so in season three, instituted this new thing where the first thing we start with is a an old picture. I try to get it to be a bad haircut, but I'm learning that a lot of people didn't have bad haircuts. So that's, uh, uh, we're just going to have to go with a childhood and, we, and old we, photo. We didn't take pictures of the bad haircut. Or oh, we, right. Or we disposed of those photos immediately. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you could do that then because you didn't have right. cell phones with right. cameras. But I have this picture of you. This is the one. It'll be on the Instagram with this um, with this episode. So tell me about what is going on in this in this photo. So that's a That's a, a photo of me and one of my best friends who is still today. One of my best friends. His name is Lurch. Well, that's his nickname. That's <laughs> such a great a nickname. Voice. But his real name is Gary. Gary Gregory. He doesn't mind if I use his name. Um, and that was at the heart of that was at the heart of the heroin years. Me mm. and my man Gary. In fact, we were together when I got busted on the on the, the crime that actually sent me into drug rehabilitation. That was probably Did- shortly before that happened. That photograph. And did he, so what, this looks very 1970s, is yeah, it? Yeah, 70, that's probably 77, circa 77. 1977. All right, what are you smoking? Did you roll that cigarette yourself? What, what's, what are we no, working with? Cool super longs. Cool. Or cool extra longs, I can't remember extra what they were. <laughs> uh, I take it that's it a menthol cool. situation? Yes, it is, yeah. I love menthols, love me some menthols. Uh, it's not the coolest cigarette I've ever smoked, but I do love them. You're saying cool wasn't the coolest cigarette? I mean, really? Cool wasn't the coolest cigarette. How well, I don't know. Be, I got te- I got teased endlessly for smoking menthols because I was just not, apparently that's not hardcore, but I just love menthols. And uh, did your boy, did he get in trouble with you when you were arrested? Like you got sent away. Did he get sent away? He did actually. And um, he got sent away. Uh, we were we were arrested for possession of stolen property. Now right. this was uh, jewelry, basically that we went to to take to a jeweler that he had sold jewelry to in the past. And okay. The guy had some heat on him, the jeweler, and he basically mm. turned us in to get the heat off of him. But but my friend Gary, he was just with me. I I actually burglarized the house one yeah. morning, uh, sick from withdrawal symptoms by myself and I called him. So we went together and both because he was with me, we were both charged with the felony of possession of stolen property. And he, he did a year in the uh, county pen for that. And he, he could have told wow. on me, he could have said, Charles, Charles robbed the house, not me. And you know, he could have, you know, he could have spilled the beans, but he didn't. And Why he, didn't he, he spill it. the beans? Cause you were going away anyway. So because that's my that was my boy. He still is. That's right, right. That's right. the that was the classic that's... prisoner's dilemma. 
Tell right. on your friend and you get out of jail free card. You get a, you get an out uh, get out of jail free card. In fact, yeah, but he gets. But you were going either way. Well, yes, but I wasn't. They didn't have me for for burglary. They only had me for possession. Got it. Okay. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. So they could. Yeah. They were trying to, to to get two charges. I see. Burglary. I see. As well, and and they, they even flipped it a, a few days after. Uh, he was sent to jail. Uh, he couldn't make bail. I my mother bailed me out, and um. He had been in trouble before, so I think his bail was more than mine because uh, he already had a criminal record. And a few days after he went away, the chief of police called me, had me picked up and brought down. He was trying to solve other crimes, and he was basically offering me a deal. If you could help me solve some of these other crimes in the neighborhood, I'll give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm-hmm, some, mm-hmm. some of those crimes were my man Lurch. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, there was uh, there was one that he was dying uh, to solve, and I was right there before it happened. I I uh, knew it. I could I could have oh, been the man. eyewitness that would have oh, sent man. him away. And but I refused. I said, "Hey, listen, I can't help you now." Mind you, I was offered reduced to felony to a misdemeanor and one year probation. I was yeah. offered that deal as opposed to keeping the felony. Yeah. And then, you know, it left Tuckahoe, which is a small town in Westchester I grew up in. And I ended up in White Plains, uh, uh, the, the county court. And that's when I got ultimately hit with 30 days and two years in drug rehab. That's how the whole thing happened. So my man Lurch, he, we were together in Lockstock. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that wasn't the only okay. time we were in that okay. situation, right? Okay. Okay. So that makes much more sense. It wasn't just like this one. That's how I see. I, that's how I think about it. Like this is, this is totally like sober girl in LA bullshit. But like when I get a, when I get a parking ticket in LA or whatever, I like in, in my head, I just count it as like, uh, uh, like, oh, well, they caught me this time. And this is, you know, this is for all the other times I didn't get caught, whatever. I'll just pay this shit. Like just, you, you just, you throw it in the bucket, you know, just whatever. I think that um, we all have those relationships and it's really interesting to me that like, there's one thing, my mom always told me there's no honor among thieves. She would always tell me that, but that wasn't always my experience. And I think that, I think that there's some truth to that, but I, that wasn't my, that, that always my experience. And I think what you're describing is different than, you know, just two criminals. Like this is a, a, a lifestyle, a way of life, a life that you're born into, something that happens, this community that you live in together and you care deeply about that community. And just because you have, veered off the straight and narrow, so to speak, does not mean that you have no honor within you whatsoever. And I think that, you know, and some people are going to say, well, it's not honorable to not tell about crimes, but you know, there's, there's levels, right? (laughs) There's levels of honor. Well, I mean, no, no, no one got shot, killed, right, right. beat up. You understand? I mean, there was no physical harm. All, all of my friends were nonviolent criminals. I mean, we just wanted to get high, basically. Right. And um, in fact, I mean, I never had an encounter with an individual. I burglarized homes where nobody was there. And on one occasion, the people came home while we were in the house, man, and we jumped out the window and ran for the hills, right? So right. We, right. Weren't, we weren't trying, Ashley. We were just kids, you know, lost and confused. 
you know, sick, you know, from this addiction. And, you know, we just wanted to get high. That was it. We didn't want to hurt anyone. You grew up. So tell me about the home that you grew up in. You grew up in Harlem? No. So I spent a lot of my teenage years using drugs, buying drugs in Harlem. Okay. I I grew up in Westchester County. Uh, That's right. That's right. How do you say the name? Tuckahoe? T-U-C-K-A-H-O-E, Tuckahoe, New York, (laughs) which is not even a town. It's a village, right? Oh, it's a village. I I mean, there's only a few thousand people in the the whole whole village. So, but it's a quaint, you know, little village. It's right next door to Bronxville, which, as you may know, is one of the richest suburbs uh, in the U.S., right? A lot of Wall Street executives and CEOs and CFOs. Uh, all the C-suite people that work in New York that don't want to live in New York, they all live in Westchester. So Bronxville is yep. one of those little towns. And my, I grew up in a housing project. Literally, in, in Tuckahoe, there's a housing yeah. uh, project. And literally, I could look out of my window and see across the fence that separated Tuckahoe from Bronxville. Wow. Crazy, right? And that is crazy. And And the housing project, like... Tell me about how living in a housing project. Like, what is that experience like? And and do you know, like, when people are like, "Oh, I'm in a project." Like, do people know what that means? Like, did you did you always live in in that project? So I, I moved in. Uh, so my mother and father moved in with me when I was two. Prior to that, I lived across the street in the basement apartment that my father lived in when my mother and, and him got married. So my mother, when my brother was born, when I was two, then that place was just too small and they were low income. So they were low a certain income. You could you could qualify to move into the housing project uh, where the government subsidizes the rent, basically. So I grew up there from the age of two in the same apartment until I left home. Wow. Now, this project, when people talk about housing projects, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a big range, Ashley. Of, okay, okay. okay. You know, that was my what, question. So that what, was my question. Like, what, what am I think? What am I picturing yeah, here? You, you always see on on TV, New Jack City, yeah. right? You, you see these housing yeah. projects in these movies where it's yeah. just depicted. I mean, it's just horrendous. It's a awful. shooting gallery. It's, you know, it's just yeah. gnarly. And I hung out in some of those projects in Harlem. St. Nick Projects, which was, you know, on 8th Avenue, well, between... Eighth and Seventh. I mean, it was a whole city block uh, between Eighth Avenue, Seventh Avenue, 126th Street, and 127th. I believe it ran up to a 28th. Now those projects were different. I mean, those okay. projects okay. were drug infested. I mean, I, I would go in there sometimes with with people that I knew who lived in the area, and we would use drugs together. And man, let me tell you, I would not have wanted to grow up like that. Now, that being said, there's still growing up in any housing project, you're growing up in an environment where there are very few uh, highly educated people, right? So there were no, there there were no role models. I didn't know anyone who graduated from college that in my housing project, uh, you have a lot of, not one single person and and no parent. Was your, were your parents, what was their highest level of education? My mother uh, graduated from uh, Commerce High School in Yonkers, which was a well, quote unquote non-academic high school. She was trained to be uh, a secretary, right? Okay, okay. Um, and that's what she did pretty much all her life. And my father, 
he did attend Westchester Community College okay. uh, for a while. And that was before my that was before my brother. That was before my mother got pregnant with my brother. And the story goes like this. Once she she once he got pre- once she got pregnant, then he decided to to quit because he needed to work to support the kids. Right. But I, I don't really know the real story. But you don't buy you're not that. buying it. It doesn't seem, you know, I mean, especially what I knew of my father, it just didn't. But he he was a very responsible, you know, he worked very responsible in that way. He and he believed in in hard work. Uh he had his alcohol thing going for many years, weekend warrior type of person. Uh, and there were troubles on the home front in part because of that. And they divorced when I was about eight. So that created a situation there where my mother has two boys that she's raising on her own. He got remarried, moved to Yonkers. So I would go, me and my brother would go for weekends to spend with him and his new family, which was cool because his second wife had three kids, one my age, one older, one younger. I, I enjoyed going over there. She was this you know, Janet was the ideal stepmother, right? <laughs> Janet Boswain, that was her, her name before they got married, but she was the ideal stepmother. I loved her. I still love her. But, you know, being home and then growing up in that environment where there are drugs, right? Yeah. Where there are, uh, where all the parents have to work. So the kids are coming home and my mother's not at home, imagine. Right. And there's no discipline in the house and she's, str- she's struggling to hold it together. And eventually, you know, the kids go one or two ways and I went the wrong way. I took a left when I should have took a right. What do you think the difference between the kids who like what you saw it just for just to your project, your housing project? What do you think the difference between the kids who went left and the kids who went right, so to speak? And obviously this is like a massive generalization, (laughs) but in your, you know, what do you think the difference was? What do you how, how did that? map how did that pan out actually it's hard to to pinpoint it now i understand the research suggests that single parent homes kids who are who are raised in single parent homes and when they say that they generally mean the mother right mm-hmm. right <laughs> yeah it <laughs> takes a lot mother. for us to leave our kids <laughs> yeah uh tend to have more uh problems behavioral problems they tend to have more problems with, with the law they tend to be more inclined to use drugs, uh, so that's a, st- a statistical phenomenon that we that researchers have observed. Now, that being said, um, one of my uh, friends that I grew up with, who grew up in a single home, was a straight A student. He went to college after he graduated. You know, everybody looked up to him. I asked him. I said, "What?" I said, asked him. I said, "Ray, how did you do that?" His name is Ray Edwards. I said, "How did you do that?" Uh, years later, after I cleaned up, and you know, we we still remain friends. And he told me that he was identified in elementary school as having unusual unusual reading skills, and by one of his teachers. And she put him in the gifted class for reading. And as a result, he got special attention in school. And he just stayed in advanced classes all the way through until he graduated. That's interesting, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that statistic too. Like if you, the kids who are praised are told, you know, that we, we put into kids' heads what very much at a young age, what we think they'll be able to achieve. And, uh, and it's interesting. I was told I could do whatever I wanted to. And 
now, you know, I could do it all. And now I'm trying to do it all. And it's very stressful. But because I was told that I believe I can. So, you know, there's that there's there's the upside and the downside. But they uh, they say that, you know, very much about what like teachers and what like they did these studies, these double blind studies where they had kids who were told that they were good at something and then kids who were told they weren't and they were at the exact same level. And they, you know, the ones who were told they were going to do well, did well. And then they switched them and same same result. The kids who were told they were going to do well, were going to do, you know, did well. And, you know, very, very interesting how much that matters. Carol Dweck wrote a book about this called The Growth Mindset. She's Mm -hmm. a professor at Stanford where they've done many studies where they've gone into schools in in inner cities Mm -hmm. and worked with the kids on mindset, basically, Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, if you teach a kid that you can do it, (laughs) the kids ultimately start to believe it, and they do. I think that's what happened to me when I got into drug rehab. I was yeah, so I could do it. And I thought, wow. And then I was in a situation where I had to do it and I did it. Right. And it was like, wow, that was pretty cool. I actually, did, you know, I took the GED exam and I passed. Like, wow, that's that feels good. Right. It feels good right. to, to 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 work hard at something and then the succeed. Chief, yep. You get it. Yeah. Because I think when you're using and we'll get into this in, in a second, when you're using my experience is people come to, you know, people come to expect you to be the drug addict that you are. And you become, you, you start to expect that behavior from yourself because you have given over your power and you know that you're not going to be able to overcome it. Right. Like I knew at a certain point that yes, my value, my true values and my heroin values were not the same, but there was no way I was, my true values were just going to overcome my heroin values. That just wasn't going to happen. So I just, you know, I succumbed to this is who I am and the life that I'm leading. And this is what I do in order to get my drugs. Talking about this makes me think about something that was said over and over when I was at Renaissance, which was the name of the the drug program that I went Mm -hmm. to upstate in Ellenville, New York. Uh, And they had this philosophy, they called it the Renaissance philosophy. And every day before every meal, somebody had to stand in front of the group, like a, it was like a prayer, like, like, like you're going to bless the food. Someone had to read the philosophy out loud to the group. So it stayed in your mind and we took turns. Everybody had to, at some point do this. And one of the things that stood out for me in that philosophy was if you treat people as they are, they will stay as they are. But if you Mm. treat them as if they were what they ought to be and could be, they will become as they ought to be and could be. That was the closing line of that philosophy. And it's a growth mindset. It's it's exactly what Carol Dweck wrote about in her book. So I'm always amazed at how much of my experience in drug rehab has been subsequently confirmed by the behavioral sciences and the neuroscientists mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What did, how did you get in how did you get into heroin? I, what did what did you know about drugs and why did you decide to take that leap or was it just like not that big of a deal back then? It it was a big deal, but I thought it was cool using heroin i you know my whole image at the time actually and this is another thing i learned in in drug treatment was that i had this image about myself that protected me in a way 
right? My my true self, I, I couldn't even tell you what that was at the time. If you asked me, who are you, Charles? I couldn't have told you who I am. But I had this image, and the image was I was I was one of the cool kids, right? Right. I dressed like the cool kids. I smoked mm-hmm. cigarettes. I talked like the cool kids. I walked like the cool kids. You smoked cools. I smoked cools, which was also mm-hmm. cool, right? So <laughs> when 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 the drug heroin, when I was became aware of this drug, and that you know initially we were sniffing it, but then I found out that some of the older guys were actually taking it intravenously. And the way I found out was we would go to Harlem together, me and my friends and the older guys in my neighborhood, right? Tommy and Albie and, you know, Tony. I mean, these guys were four or five years, six years maybe ahead of us. And I looked up to these guys because they were the, they were cool kids, right? But now they were, they were grown, kind of young, cool. And we would go to Harlem and we would buy the heroin and they would say, wait here. And we'd be waiting on 8th Avenue and 126th Street. And they would just run away from us and come back like unbelievably super high. And initially it didn't occur to me what was going on. But after it didn't take long to, to pick up like, wait a minute, these guys are doing something. They're much higher than than, than <laughs> I'm getting. Right, and I wanted right. to know. And I started prodding and prodding. And they tried to hide it from me, actually. And eventually, like most dope things, they, they give mm-hmm. in. Right. Eventually right, right. They, they start using it in front of us. And then as much as they said, no, no, no. And, and the first time I used it, it was with, with Tommy Harmon. And Tommy tried to tell me over and over and over, don't do this. You don't want this. Yep. You don't. Yeah. And I just prodded. And eventually he just broke down and gave in. And I got my first shot. And after that, I was off to the races. I just this was like sex on steroids. And I was only 16. Imagine that. I mean, when you're 16. You know, and if and if you're having sex at 16, you know that's all you want to do at that age, right? And I mean, to, for something to no su- comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Peter's going to be listening. Your father. Oh, he knows. There are no secrets right? between us. <laughs> by by 16, that 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 was long. <laughs> that was long over. <laughs> But yes, theoretically, if that was my experience. But sixteen, yeah, I just—I mean, I—I I too started shooting here at sixteen. Yeah. So I mean, it was the feeling was just incredible, and it was just—and initially, that's all it was. You know, it was like, wow, this was this was cool. People were afraid of needles, right? Most right. people, most yeah. of the kids that were smoking weed and taking different kinds of pills. And, you know, using other drugs would be afraid to use a needle. So to to actually inject yourself with heroin, to me, that was the ultimate. That was the thing that separated me and my friends. This was the ultimate. And only a small group of us had the heart to do that. The heart. I love it. Is that what we had? (laughs) (laughs) The heart. Yeah. I mean, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, I was terrified of needles. That was the thing, though. Like, I thought that I was, I never thought that I would end up being one of those people, whatever it was, because I was afraid of needles or like I would never, for me, there was, you know, there were a lot of conversations in my community about like, don't do drugs, blah, blah, blah. And, my dad tried to sow seeds early around like 
just drink beer and smoke weed. Like, don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like he was trying to like, don't overdo it. You know, don't, don't do what my sister did, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, cause my parents were able to use recreationally. And so their experience was that you could ha- keep your shit together and use recreationally and blah, 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 blah. So they kind of wanted to put that. And I, I thought that being afraid of needles would stop me or would keep me from like, I was like, that's not going to happen. And, you know, it's incredible the lines that you'll cross. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't think it was cool. Like it, I, I should say it wasn't cool when I was doing like people, you know, young white girls were not doing heroin where I was, that was not a thing. So the fact, so like, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't telling anybody about it, but I definitely felt like I needed something that went much, you know, harder and faster than what I was getting. So I, you know, it was like that I need that because this isn't doing enough for me anymore. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, when you think back on your teenage years and the things we told ourselves, it's incredible. I mean, I I feel like I was, a, it's almost like I was a different person. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Things that Dream I did, state. It, it's, it was just crazy. I mean, I I can remember when my mind cleared up in, in drug rehab and it took months for me. I was, I was in, I understand today people go into 21 day drug programs. What is that? I mean, I was, brutal. <laughs> I was in drug treatment for, I was upstate for almost 20 mm-hmm. months, Yep. 20 yep. months upstate. Yep. And then I had four months when I came out of upstate into what they call, it was called a phase out period where they slowly integrate you back into the community and you still have meetings to go to and eventually you look for a job or you know go to school or whatever it is you're going to do. Uh, but it was a two-year experience from start to finish. Yep. Yep. Me too. I went, I, I had, I went for away for two years and there was no way a 30-day situation was gonna, I mean, I was just so beyond that, uh, that 30 days came from how long the military and therefore insurance would allow people to go away to get help. So that's where that that model came from. It didn't actually come from what is most effective. Uh, not surprisingly, it was based on money and not on on health. But um, yeah, I, so you were in a therapy, you went away to a therapeutic community after being arrested. The ther- a therapeutic community it was um, Renaissance House, like Delancey Street. Is that, are you familiar with Delancey? I don't know Delancey Street, but the Renaissance Project sprung out from the the the, the people who founded the Renaissance Project came from Daytop Village. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Daytop Village and was the first, at least on the East Coast. I'm not sure about the West Coast. I wonder if Delancey Street was West Coast, but I, I don't um, I don't remember Delancey Street. There was Samaritan House, which is actually still around. I believe Daytop is also still around, but those were the three big ones. Daytop Village was the biggest. And then you had Samaritan House in, in the Renaissance Project. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups. And there is no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator, Ashley Joe Brewer, AJB, if you will. AJB, hi. Hi. Okay. You're a big fan of community. You attend community support group meetings. Give why, why, why should people care? I absolutely love community because it creates a community. And I know that sounds funny, but 
It truly provides a space for anyone and everyone, no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, it's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is. Everyone is accepted no matter where they are in life, no matter what they are recovering from. And I think that's what's beautiful about community. Oh, I love it. And I, I yes, I 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up, or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one, whatever, whatever it is, you are welcome and you are welcome in this place. And it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support. And it's free to anyone. You go to lionrock.life. And there is a tab with community meetings. There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out community, lionrock.life. Click that community tab. Why do you think that that experience? So, will you, okay, so for people who don't know what a therapeutic community is, we explain what that is and why you think that that had such a profound effect on you. <laughs> That's a, explain what it is. Oh my God, Ashley, that it would take forever to <laughs> explain this place. Oh Lord. Yes, I yes. Mean, I mean, you can the detail. Just, it's behavior modification was one of yeah. the terms that they used, yeah. right? It's completely different from a 12-step program. And it was military in its orientation. I, I will say that. Uh, it was very regimented. The time you got up in the morning, the time you ate, the time you had uh, groups to talk about things. Everyone had a job to do. It was actually run by the people who were in it. So, you know, you come, I came in at the bottom of the, of the ladder and then gradually over time, by the time I left, I was uh, at the position that they called senior coordinator, which means everything that happened uh, from the time that they started till the time it ended was my responsibility. And I would just report to a staff person and everyone below me was a drug addict in the program. So it was set up in a way to give the, uh, the addicts an experience that would enable us to develop discipline, responsibility, uh, accountability, uh, to understand what it actually would take to 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 be a responsible uh, citizen. And when you got out, right, uh, and they mm-hmm. didn't hesitate to 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 punish. I mean, mm-hmm. I, when when you stepped out of line, I was. This is the thing that caused me to turn around. When I stepped out of line, the punishment was swift and severe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and wake public. up. Wait, yeah, and <laughs> my, public. My, yes. experience, my experience was it was, it was also very public. <laughs> yes. They humiliated you um, in front yep. of everyone. And then yep. they came, you know, I would, I would wake up at six in the morning. And at times 
uh, for days on end, not go to bed until three in the morning and then wake up again at six in the morning and then not go to bed until I would I would fall asleep on my feet standing up. Uh, I was so exhausted at a point and eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And that's when I, I just gave in and started following the rules. Yep. And eventually <laughs> my brain started to rewire because it was kind of cool following the rules and then being yep. rewarded for that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I was in a therapeutic community for a year and that was like, I could fake it for a month. Like I could fake follow the rules for a month or two here and like say the right things, but not a year. And I, and, and the experience of, you know, I am very much I, like, I like rewards. I do well with rewards and I don't like punishments. So I, you know, you, you adjust, you do, you, and, and it seems really intense. I remember my parents were like, oh my God, what is happening? You know, like, I, I mean, there were questionable things. It was, there were things that were probably over the line and a little abusive, but um, they, it, it's interesting. Those people who I did, who, you know, I was with, so those are some of still my best friends today. They were in my wedding and, um, you know, you bond with people in those places, differently than I think I've ever bonded with anyone. It's, it's like a family, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the, on the, when you first came up to Renaissance, it was on a hill. And mm-hmm. when, you, when you got up to the top of this hill, then you would see this was an old resort that was uh, donated by an investment banker named Seth Glickenhaus. So he, <laughs> he decided he was going to take this old resort which they have many up in the Catskill Mountains, right? Mm-hmm. That was a big thing. I mean, uh, what was that? There was a TV show that talked that um, basically showed how these resorts worked. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or Maisel. something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would go to this upstate in the Catskill Mountains uh, resorts. And Seth basically took one of these resorts and he converted it to, he, he handed it over to Renaissance. Hey, you guys take it. And he basically funded the whole thing until they were able to, to get going with with their own fundraising. And in and, and, and the front, there was the sign when you got to it, it would say the Renaissance family. That was the sign, the Renaissance family. And to this day, my friends from Renaissance, the relationship that I have with them are not like any relationship yep. with yep. anyone. Nope. The way we communicate, the way we relate, the level of authenticity, of openness, a willingness to be vulnerable is it's just incredible. I mean, I had a, a a conversation yesterday with a friend I hadn't spoke to in, in since I since we you know kind of went our own separate ways after after we left the program. You know, a lot of us lost touch, and I reconnected with them yesterday. Patsy, Patsy Bartiromo, guys from the Bronx. I mean, this kid he came to the drug program. He was like a bandit. I mean, he was like an armed robber. I mean, he was facing all kind of crazy charges in Brooklyn uh, criminal court. But back then, the judges, because of this drug thing and the drug program thing, they he got a break and they sent him up. And you would never think that this guy was a freaking bandit. He was like a teddy bear. You know, he got off drugs. He was like the sweetest guy. Him and I were yeah. talking. It was just like, wow. And he celebrated 43 years today. It's wow. his 43 year anniversary he he was there and, and he got to renaissance three months before me so we went through the whole thing together you know me That's him I, you know other friends so we can, i was talking to jerry i mean one of the uh jerry was a staff member jerry with it he was like a football player from uh Nourishell. 
right? He was a star. And then he was trying out for the Canadian Football League, I remember. And he became a mentor for me. And he was, like, just so incredible. I mean, I, I leaned on him while I was there. And to this day, we're, we're still in touch. You know, I mean, we, we talk. We, we're on Facebook. We're on, um, yeah. you know. I mean, it's just like nothing ever changed. We could go months without talking to each other or even years and then connect as if there was no break at all in our yep. relationship. Yep. It's incredible. And, and, um, I went to a place called gatehouse and my friends from there are, are, are family. I mean, literally, you know, they're, they're, they're invited to my siblings, you know, life events. They, they, it's, it's truly family. And, it's interesting, you know, I, I've gotten phone calls from people I haven't heard from in years. And, you know, uh, we, I had, I've had some over the years in our, in our, you know, group, right. Like in our, you know, what would be the equivalent of, you know, class or section Mm -hmm. (laughs) for for drug addicts. And, um, and, you know, we've had falling outs and I, and, and with people and interestingly, I've always said like, yeah, there's, there's falling outs in our group. But if any of those people called me up and needed me, like if something happened, it, they're like family, like we may not talk all the time or I'm, we may not be friends anymore, but we have a shared experience that is so deep that even if I didn't like them, I would still show up if they needed me because we're family. Like it's just it's not something I can even explain. Like, I don't have a lot of friends where that's the case, but you know, I, you know, there are people in on this planet who I don't like anymore and I would show up for them because that's the relationship that we had, you know, that's, that's, that's what we all as that community built. And then I of course have other friends that super, super close to and more family. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it is. And I've been to a, a lot of rehabs and, uh, and I don't have that relationship with other people in the other rehabs like that therapeutic community was a very specific intense thing that bonded us in a way that even you know even other treatments long-term treatments I've been to didn't so it's a it's a really incredible life-changing experience that um, I didn't stay sober after mine but because I went through it I knew where to go who to call what to do when the time came for me that I wanted to be sober. And it was as a result of that experience. It was very transformational. It's like the Hotel California. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. can check out, but you can never leave, Ashley. Once once they get you. Yep, that's it. It's in you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a part. I mean, it is. It's a part of... It's a part of my experience. And it's also part of my experience because of how old I was and what everyone else was doing. So, and I've, I've, you know, I shared this when, and we'll, we'll talk about this. I shared this when I applied for schools, right? Which was, you know, my high school experience was that I was in these situations that not, no one else other than the people there would relate to. So while everyone else was, playing sports and, you know, um, learning things and whatever it was, I, I didn't do that stuff. I did this stuff. And so it, I, in many ways I was behind educationally, right. I was, you know, very behind educationally, but I was ahead emotionally. And so when I was reintegrated back and, and, and we'll talk about this when I was reintegrated back, first of all, coming from my family, I felt you know, I had a lot of shame about 
where I was educationally. Like I didn't graduate high school. I mean, no one in my family didn't have a master's degree from an Ivy League school. No one, like no one. And so for me to have this other, I mean, even my drug addicted aunt had a master's degree from Columbia. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was like, you know, it was like really bad. And, and so I, you know, I came out with a lot of shame, but what was interesting and, and I, I did a lot of things to like overcompensate for that. But what was interesting was how I didn't relate to these, these other people who were academically ahead because they were so emotionally and, you know, behind so emotionally stunted. Yeah. They had the, they had the book smart, they had the knowledge they had, you know, they have that. I see it. I see it all the time. But we didn't, I mean, they were so, the depth that they had was so shallow that I couldn't make sense of, I admired these people, but I couldn't connect with them. It's amazing because I I can say the exact same thing from my own experience. How how much older were you? So when you went back, obviously you you had this, you must have been older than the average, your average classmate, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I got sober at 19 and I had not graduated high school and started, I was a piercer at a tattoo shop and I start and I had, so I was doing high school, like on, like basically the equivalency of a GED, but it was like through a school and I was doing it online, trying to get it. And I just like, so I started college. I started community college. I moved to Southern California, started community college and was into community college when I graduated online. So I graduated high school after starting college and, uh, you know, I graduated some online school and then I start, so I started community college at 20, but it took me five years year round to finish my undergrad degree because I was so behind. And because you and I were talking about this before the recording, which was I had to take two math classes that did not count for, I, so you test in, right? I don't know if they did this, but you test in like, where do you go? And you can start community college as long as you're 18. You don't have to have a high school diploma. So I was 19 or 20, whatever it was. And, and I tested into high level English, and I tested into remedial math. And so I had to take two classes that counted for credit in order to get to a class, a math class counted for credit. So I had to do school year round for five years to get that freaking bachelor's degree. And there were kids in those classes that, you know, they were way ahead of me and much younger. Right. So I, I started when I was 21. Okay. So I and and it took me five years as well. So I, I went through the exact oh, same thing that you yeah. went through at community college. Mm-hmm. I started off with the arithmetic, mm-hmm. uh, basic. Uh, I think the the classes were arithmetic, uh, basic <laughs> reading, introduction to writing. I, I mean, we, they were teaching me how to use the dictionary. It was that bad. And management. Oh, wow. It was a management yeah. class. And I got <laughs> I got three A's and a B. Right. I got three A's and a B. And I got an A in the management class. And the professor of the management class, he was also the chairman of the Department for Business Administration. So he took me and all of the students from that group the first semester that had uh, an outstanding GPA and they got and, and received an A in his class. And it, we became the ones that he mentored. We were mm-hmm. like his, his, his special group. His name was John Christensen. And man, let me tell you, he, I never forget after my first semester, and he wanted to know, what's your plans? He probably asked all of the kids this, right, that he brought into this 
club called Alpha Beta Gamma, who was a it was a it was a club in the National Business Honor Society, right? Okay. Uh, Alpha Beta Gamma, that was the name of it. We were the Delta Delta Club, right? So he would have a talk with each of us. He said, "What are your plans, Charles? What do you plan to do after this?" And I told him I was planning to go to a, uh, a what I thought was a reputable college in in Westchester County. And I knew people who had gone to that college and, and seemed to me anyway to have done quite well for themselves. And after I told him this, he looked at me and he said, why do you want to go to a shit school like that? He says, forget about that college. He said, you want to go to Wharton. I never forget his words. He said, you want to go to Wharton, but you can't get any more B's, only A's, and you're going to have to take calculus. Now, I just finished arithmetic. I didn't right. know what Wharton was. I had never heard of a place called mm. Wharton. But eventually he, he explained it to me, sent me down to, to meet Tommy Yellen. Tommy was his former student, 4.0 from the community college, right? 750 SATs, studying Japanese and finance. And he was in Japan doing an internship. Wow. I mean, this kid sounded like an astronaut to me. Right. And I was like, he's got to be kidding me. He th- I just finished arithmetic. He's talking about calculus. And, I, yeah. you know, this is crazy. But I went down to meet Tommy, and uh, in fact, I went with Tom. Tom was my buddy, who was a we, Tom and I were close to age. Tom Madden, Irish kid, and he had come out of the Marine Corps because he he screwed up in high school, and his father said, "You're going to the Marines," and he came out of the Marine Corps. So Tom was one year older than me, so we were close in age, and we became steady uh, buddies and best friends. They called us Salt and Pepper, you know, and I don't I don't look anything like Pepper. But, you know, I was the I was the blackest <laughs> thing they had in the club. Right. So they called oh us salt God. and pepper everywhere we went. And we studied together all the time. In fact, I studied at his home. He studied at my home. He lived in an apartment in Bronxville. Right. I used to rob houses like around where he lived. It was kind of crazy for me because I was still close to that period of my life. Right. But he went down to Wharton with me and we toured the campus with Tommy Yellen. And man, let me tell you, Ashley. I had never seen, I was like I was on a different planet walking through this Mm -hmm. campus, the University of Pennsylvania. And the Wharton School, the Wharton School was being renovated. And it wasn't even open yet for classes. But we went in, the classroom was like freaking mission control, man, at Nassau. The seats were all swivelly and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like a, you know, an auditorium type setting. And they had an old booth from the New York Stock Exchange in this place. And I was blown. Everywhere I, everywhere we went on the campus, there were nothing but smart people. I remember that. Yep. Thinking, every yep. kid looked smart. Even the black kids looked smart. I mean, this was, to me, like, holy, right. oh, my God. I mean, this is, you know, this is, I, you understand, this is a whole new world for me. I was sh- I was shortly after drug program. This was 19, right. this was 1981. I graduated in 1980 from the drug program and I'm seeing all of this. And I just decided at that point, this is it. This is my destiny. And I focused all my energy at the drug program. They told me, they said, Charles, if you could put the same amount of energy Mm -hmm. into doing something positive and productive that you put into using drugs, you could do anything you want. Right. And, and I took that. In In fact, even at the drug program, you know, I learned, you know, I got this discipline, this ability. You know, there was this one staff member, her name was Cindy. And man, she drove me. This was like Navy SEALs. I mean, to me, 
right? She drove me, her and this other uh, staff member named Rodney, Rodney folks, they would punish me sometimes for no reason. And I couldn't understand it, man. I hated them. I hated them. But eventually I realized what they were doing. They were putting the pressure on me like they put on the Navy SEAL. So when when the training is over and it's time to go out on the battlefield, there's nothing that could be thrown at you that you're not ready for. So when I got to Wharton, I just I thought to myself, there's there's not I don't care how smart these kids are, they can't outwork me. Right. That and that was that I totally relate to that. I remember thinking like I remember thinking the same thing. Like these people, all these kids have been studying longer. They have, you know, they have all these things I don't have, but but they don't know my secret weapon, which is I'll do whatever it takes to get to where I need to go, whatever it takes. And I'm, I'm focused on it. And I remember getting, um, I remember getting the high school reading list, the summer reading list from the private schools. You could look them up online when I was in community college and I would read all the books because I hadn't read any of the books, right? Like, you know, and, and I grew up in a house where my dad would say, you know, he would literally refer like I learned so much Latin growing up because my parents both took Latin and would literally quiz us in the mornings. What's the root word of blah, blah, blah. What, where does it, what's the Latin word? You know, when I was a kid, meanwhile, I get to this other place. So I know the difference between what educated and non-educated looks like, which makes it even more stark in my head. And so I just knew like, I will, I will read, I will do as much as I have to do in order to get there and to be where I need to be. And I'm just, I'll just work harder than these people. I don't know what else to do, right? Like there's nothing else. There's no other way for me to get back like where I thought I needed to be. And it it totally, it prepares you. When, when so you went to Wharton undergrad and when you were there, what did, what did you study? Finance. Fin- well, everybody did economics, right? So at Wharton undergrad, the degree is a BSE, Bachelor of Science in Economics. So everyone has They don't to do- offer anything? They don't offer a BA? Well, not at Wharton. So at Penn, right? At Penn, right. You would do a BA if you were in one of the other schools. But at Wharton, right. it was a Bachelor of Science in Economics. So I did finance. And uh, that was because I went to find out how much money do do the students who graduate make. And I went to the, yep. career, the career planning and placement office. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. finance was at the top of the list. So I, I decided, well, that's it. I'm studying finance, oh, right? There you go. There <laughs> and you go. I'm working on Wall Street. That is it, baby. So that's how so I when got you, to finance. Did you know, like, how did you, uh, when you got there, did you feel like a fish out of water? Did you talk about your history or any of the, like, find people who had experiences like you did? Or were you like, I'm not going to bring that up. That's forever ago to stay focused so i i learned that renaissance that i had to talk about i couldn't be i couldn't hide myself totally right so i didn't i wasn't comfortable going around the way i am today just talking about my experience on drugs right. and you know i wouldn't right. advise, i wouldn't advise a person no. to do that you know when you're no. fresh out of the drug program either because it's people look at you differently if you have 40 mm-hmm. years of sobriety under your belt versus four months, right? I mean, it's a difference. So, but I would share my story with individuals that I felt I could trust. So the first person was Lolas, Lolas Eli. This kid was, 
I mean, he wore the glasses. He he looked like the smartest kid in the class. Right? <laughs> he spoke like the smartest kid in the class. Mm-hmm. He was so articulate. He, I couldn't understand half of what he said because my vocabulary was so weak. Right. But I just admired this kid. Uh, and I, I wanted to be able to speak like him. I remember having that feeling. I'm, I'm going to talk. I want to be able to talk like Lowe's because he would have these discussions with people. He he had all of this knowledge from reading books all his life. And I, I didn't read any books growing up as right. a kid. That wasn't part of my home experience. No one read books in my, I don't recall any of it. I didn't know anyone who just read books for fun. You read a book because you had to in school. So this kid was like, his father was a famous civil rights attorney in New Orleans. Uh, he defended like the Black Panthers. You know, I mean, he was like that kid, right? right? And he befriended me. He came up to me after the first class and it was a labor law class. And at the end of the class, he came up, he introduced himself. And I remember he was he was talking about Malcolm X in the labor law. I was I'm sitting there and I'm listening. I'm like, what the hell does Malcolm X have to do with labor law? But he was making all these connections to what he knew above and beyond what was in, right. in the class. Right, right. And so when he introduced himself to me, I was like, I'm glad someone is, you know, stepping up. And, and he asked me where I came from. And I explained to him, he said, OK, I'm going to introduce you to, to who you need to know. Harold Haskins became a mentor for me. He, he ran uh, what they call student support services which is we called it the tutoring center because you could go there right. and get a tutor for any yep. class and you didn't have to pay for it. And Hask was like, he was like the father figure type of individual. Uh, he was six foot six. You know, he used to wow. work with gangs in Philadelphia. He, he became famous for putting his finger in the barrel of a gun of a gang member um, that was preparing to go to war with a rival gang. And he was like, you got to shoot me first. But they knew him and they respected him. Yeah. Like he was that yeah. guy, but he was a yeah. teddy bear. You you understand? Yeah, yeah. So between Hask and and uh, and Lois, and then there were other people I would meet. You know, I remember this young young girl named Kim Kim Lu. She grew up in the projects in, in Saint Nick. I mean, this is where we used to go buy our heroin, and she grew right. up in those projects. Right? Wow. She's like wow. this the freaking CEO of Columbia's investment fund today. She just got that job like this year. So, her, you know, man. there were there were there were kids like Kim and like Lois yeah. that I was able to connect with and, and Hask. And I had all the support I needed. Right. Because I needed that support. And then there were professors also that were very supportive that I would go to yeah. office hours and. I bet they were excited to have someone who like really worked hard and wanted to be there. I bet that was exciting for them to have someone that didn't have just, they had that different background. I got a B in one class that I I, I was like trying to figure out, how did I get a B in this class? Because I was dizzy sitting in the classroom trying to follow the lecture. It was one of these, uh, I believe it was monetary economics, ISLM curves. There were variables Mm-mm. that they would use letters for that you would have to then do all these calculations. And they ran out of letters. They started using, because uh, everything was an alpha I know or exactly beta. exactly what you're it, talking about. They ran out yes. of them. The, the yes. professor started making up symbols. I believe, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I called my husband and I said, I'm never going to pass business school. They're, they're, I think they're using a Russian alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> 
I was like, come. I'm so, I'm so fucked. I'm so I, fucked. I mean, I was dizzy. I didn't understand a thing. The, oh. the, the blackboards, there were like three of them, right? So yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, yeah. in the tiered yeah, classroom yeah. looking down on the professor. He was yeah. writing and talking yeah. and, and he would go through all three and he would go back to the first oh, no. one. He would flip it up. It would slide up and then there was another blackboard underneath that one. Right, right. You're like, no, 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 I need that. Yeah. And then by the end, there would be six blackboards filled up with stuff. And I would just try to get it all down on paper so I could figure it out later. But he was so, he, me and him bonded so much in his, in his after hours sessions that when I, when I went and I thanked him for his help. And uh, and he told me, he says, Charles, you know, you got a B, but don't show anyone your paper because, you know, he says, I gave you the B. Uh, it was really a C, but I gave you the B because I felt you you worked harder than anyone I know. And you deserved, <laughs> he, he said, you deserve to get bounced up. Right. So that oh, was that was it. that C was yeah. the best C I ever got in my life. But he bounced it up to a, to a B. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Yep. And how did you decide? So, you know, you're, you're, what you're doing now is talking about heroin to uh, her, uh, heroin to Harvard, right? And uh, Peter's like, you can be heroin to Hopkins. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Number one fan. Uh, right. um, so, so how did you decide I'm going to go to HBS? Was that to Harvard Business School? Was that like, Oh well, that's what these other kids are doing. Did that? How did? When did that become like a real option for you? At Harvard Business School. My my recollection is they came to the Wharton campus and they did a presentation for Wharton. I I, I believe it was Wharton students uh, primarily, but you know it was probably open to any undergrad at Penn. But they came to to early recruiting and they did a presentation on the business school's program and they were trying to get the students interested. And they, they basically said, this is what we look for. And it hit me at that point that this was a real option. And I thought, wow, this is it. I decided then while I was still an undergrad, that was it. I remember talking to my homeboy Scrooge. I remember telling him, I said, bro, I'm going to Harvard. And I said, remember my words, Scrooge. Remember. Gary Crumpton. I said, remember my words. I'm going to Harvard one day. I still remember us walking walking down Washington Street, which was the block that we both grew up on. We both grew up in the same housing project. I remember it. And he was one of the people that I got into the drug program 10 years after me. 10 years. Wow. He was tired. And I went to talk to him. I said, hey, are you ready? He said, yeah, I'm ready. I got him in. And it was, went in, did his thing upstate, came out, raised his little girl on his own. This was a single parent wow. that was actually a father. Yeah. Wow. And his okay. and his daughter ultimately graduated with a master's degree and she's doing extremely well. She's a published author. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Love Shalane. that. Love that. Yep. She still calls me Uncle Chucky. Oh. So cute. <laughs> so so you decide you're going you're going to Harvard and and so what was it like receiving that acceptance letter? Or were you like, no, I knew I was going? I couldn't imagine not going. Right. right? I, and I didn't apply to any other business school. They were either going to accept me or I was going to figure out why they didn't and I would have reapplied the following year. Right. So right. I, that once I made it up in my mind, at that point, I, I just I just felt like anything is possible. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I worked at it hard enough and I knew I ticked all the boxes, actually, I, once they said this is what we look for, yeah. I just ticked all the boxes. So I knew Wall Street was if I did that, if I got the job on Wall Street, then I would be prime yeah. candidate. So I got the job on Wall Street, international experience. If I did that, that would makes me more prime. So I took the job. I got the job at Chase that I would travel around the world doing uh, risk analysis. And, you know, I had to do some other leadership thing, right? They wanted leadership. So I did leadership things. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. You just, you just check those boxes. And I, yeah. I wrote my, res- I wrote my application. I went to see my buddy Lois who, decided he didn't want to go into business and he became a professional writer. And I'll never forget, he looked at my res- at my application and he says, okay, so you, do you really want to do this? I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, we can throw this in the trash. Let's start all over again. <laughs> Lois, the beautiful thing about Lois is he, he, he didn't worry about hurting my feelings. He just told the right. truth. And I, I, I respected him for that. And I encouraged him. I said, just tell me the truth. Don't yep, worry about that. don't worry about my feelings. Although I got to a point where I said, "Bro, you could you know you could yeah. you could break it to me gently." <laughs> <laughs> and he helped me. You know, we sat down. He was working for the Atlanta Constitution and Journal, the, the business section in, the, in Atlanta. And he sat. We sat down together, and he helped me write that application uh, to basically communicate the experience because I, I still struggled uh, with my writing. You know, I got the math down, but the writing was was always a challenge. And we sent it in. They did call me for an interview because I had to explain. They wanted to talk to me about this heroin experience, right? So that was always there was no way around it because I I didn't start uh, back to college until I was twenty one, and then they had my high school transcript, which was a mess. Right, right. That you have to. I had to explain, explain. it. Yeah, and they, you know, so they were they seemed to be comfortable. They sent me a letter saying I could do it. So I got accepted and then I deferred for one year because I wanted to go back to Renaissance and do something. And I knew the people who ran it and I said, hey, listen, man, I want to, is there something for me to do? Because I'd like to to do something before I go. Because after Harvard, I know this is, I'm going to be busy after that with my career and, you know, so on and so forth. And they say, yeah, we have something for you. So I deferred and I went and I worked for Renaissance, which was like just an incredible experience. I had about eight months my life to just commit to, yeah. you know, giving something giving. back to the place that, and the people that saved my life. That's awesome. And, uh, when, so you get to, you get to HBS and, and you get your section and that's your, your section in business school that you stay with them the the whole time. And that's, so that's when you went, met Peter. That's correct. Yeah. We were in section F. Section F. Yes. I'm I'm still, I'm still in contact with many of the people who watched me grow up from section F and uh, what you had an experience that you talk about where you are, you were, you you know, you lied about your heroin experience, which, which, which was a pivotal moment for you. We, can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. So first month, at Harvard Business School. I'm so intimidated, Ashley. Even after the Wharton thing, this was just a whole nother level. At, at Wharton, it was just smart kids. At Harvard, it was like smart, famous people. <laughs> and your father was one of them, right? So everyone knew who the, who were like the 
the the, the people with names, family names, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Peter Loeb, Lehman Brothers, Kuhn Loeb. That's the guy, right? Uh, Philippe, the Baron Philippe Rothschild. I mean, Baron. We had a Baron in our class from France. I mean, this is the investment banking family. They own one of the, the top, you know, wine estates in Bordeaux, right? I mean, this is, you know, we had those kind of people. So I'm sitting in the classroom and I'm so intimidated. I'm thinking, man, these people are so far of, of over my head. They are so far ahead of me. The way they speak, you know, I'm struggling to keep up with the workload. And they're, they're just like taking it like it's no big deal. You know, read the cases and go out and drink beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the first month we had a communications class and it was a four minute presentation that that we had to do that would be recorded on any topic, but you couldn't use any props. Applying the principles that we were learning about communications. So I decided to do mine on drugs, and I, it was easy for me to, to get statistical data from people in the drug program that I knew about the problem with drugs in America. I thought I could, I could speak to this confidently. It's a subject that I was comfortable with, but I didn't make it personal. I didn't talk about right. myself. This was just research, right, that I was presenting mm-hmm. on. So the professor decided she wanted to use my presentation as an example. Now, the funny thing is this. She talked about how I mastered the pause in my presentation. So I would say something and then I would pause. And she would, so she showed it to the class and she says, notice how Charles uses the power of the pause. And I'm, and I'm sitting and I'm watching this and listening and I'm thinking, she has no idea. I was so nervous. I couldn't like remember what yeah, I had yeah, to yeah. say. So oh I, I spoke slowly and I took my time and mm-hmm. it allowed me to catch my, you know, my memory, but it didn't yep. look that way. But when you're using right. drugs and selling drugs on the street, you master also being able to hide your feelings when you're nervous or, or afraid. Right. That's so I, I didn't look that way, but I felt that way. My heart was racing. So after it was all over, Peter came up at the end of the class and complimented me. He said, Charles, I'm just curious. Have you ever been on drugs or in a drug program? Now, this is the first month, Ashley. I don't know this. Yeah. I, I know who he is, but I don't know him. I don't trust him. Yeah. Right? There, yeah. there are I, people that know my story, but those are people that I'm close to after I get to know right. you. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to tell him. And these people yeah. are not going to know what my He probably should have led with why he was asking. <laughs> Right. That could have helped. It could have helped a lot because after I said, no, why do you ask? Then he told me about his sister who was a heroin addict. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And he he had nothing to hide. It was he felt no shame, no embarrassment. And that kind of hit me, too. Like, this is not something that people talk about to people they don't really know. Right. I, Right. I wasn't at that level. I could once I got to know Lolas, I could tell him my story or, or Kim Lou, I could tell her my story or, you know, I could get to know a person and I would share it with them, but not people I didn't know. And I walked away from that. Just, I couldn't shake it. It was in my mind. Like, why did I lie? Why, why did I lie? Why did I lie? And for the, for the rest of the two years there, every time I would see Peter, I would be reminded of this lie. And then I couldn't say I lied because (laughs) no one wants to admit I'm a liar. You can't believe anything I say. (laughs) I'm a drug addict and a liar. Oh, my God. So it wasn't until the reunion five years later that 
I, I went to him and I knew I was going to see him and I knew I was going to tell him. I was like, I got to get this stuff off my chest here. And sure enough, we, we found a moment and I, I asked him if he really, he couldn't even remember. Of course not. He could, yeah. he had no memory of the communications class yeah. or the, the video, yeah. nothing. And I'm thinking, man, I'm all stressed out about this for years. He can't even remember what happened, uh, but he was so cool when I told him and, and he thanked me for sharing, you know, the story with him. And we had a long chat about the addiction and his family and so on and forth. And I'm almost sure at some point he told me about you as well at one of those reunions. Because every five years we would see each other at the yeah. reunions. And I'm almost yeah. sure, because I remember him saying, if you ever come to California, Charles, I'd, I'd like you to maybe, you know, give me a shout. Maybe you could, you know, sit down with Ashley and just have a chat with her. Well, but I never <laughs> went to California, I, you know, at that point. Yeah. I was just never in I had no reason. You know, I didn't have any friends, any any reason to go out there. So that's why you never saw me in California. Otherwise, we w- I would have met you at some point during your crazy, you know, years. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I wasn't exactly open to feedback, as you can imagine. I can't imagine, um, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting as, and, and you and I have talked about, it's interesting, the about perception, right? And perception is this really powerful thing because, you know, I didn't think that a person like me could ever go to an Ivy League school, that I would never make it. So here's, here's the, you know, because I'm, because of my educational history and all of the things that have happened, I was like, yeah, that's never going to happen for me. I'm never going to be able to do that. And I think it's really interesting how like you're intimidated of him. And, you know, we, we all think we have this imposter syndrome, right? We all think we don't belong because if we are like this, we don't belong. And you, you know, so, so that's, that's your not belonging. When he told me about you, that you you were on heroin and then you went to Harvard. I thought, oh, maybe there's a world in which I could go to an Ivy. So your story for me was inspirational about what I was capable of doing because my dad being able to do that meant jack shit to me because I wasn't the kid who went to the great private schools and the, the like he to me was not relatable but you were relatable. And to you, he was not relatable. And I, I just think that that's like, when you think about that, when you think about how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive others, that relatability, right? Like who we think is going to make a difference or who we think is better than us, right? Because I had the same feeling that all of those people are better than me. What we're talking about is getting down to the heart of what it means to be human. Right. Right. And when we have these kinds of conversations and we get past that stereotype, Mm -hmm. right. That say I had of of Peter and that you have of Peter. And now I'm having, I would have had the same stereotype of you. Like, right. What could this girl, you know, she would, what could she learn from me? Right. Right. Um, Right. That would make sense. So to hear that I was an inspiration for you right? from the Lowe family, that's like, wow, really? How does that work, right? But today, obviously, I'm not surprised because I've 
I've experienced a lot more, but at that time I would have been surprised. That would have been, yeah, that would have been surprising because it's you, because what you did was, is relatable to me. I, what I did was I went to, you know, I went to neighborhoods that I didn't live in for lack of a better term that I would didn't live in. And that's where I hung out. And those are the people. and, And I did drugs in those neighborhoods. I committed crimes in order to, sustain my habit. I forego, you know, forwent education and, and experiences like that was, I had the same experience. I, you know, possibly more privileged experience, but I still, still the same type of experience. I didn't have the experience of feeling like I, like, like I was part of that, this family, this legacy, right? Like when I went to you know, we lived on the Harvard Divinity School campus. And when I went at like, when I would hear about like low boathouse or our name on the buildings, like that was so ups, like intimidating for me because I was, bo- I was born, I, was, I, I saw myself as being born outside of that. Like, yes, down, but I was born outside of it. It didn't account. It didn't apply to me because of all these things. And you know, it is, it's about, it's, it's really about the human experience. And it's this imposter syndrome that we have, that we think we all have. And, you know, and I was in Baltimore and um, I'm finishing my MBA at Johns Hopkins. And as in Baltimore, most of my classmates are doctors. And, and I had all of that stuff all over again, where I went into this classroom and people, I'm like, oh my God, this, the CMO of the biggest allergy clinic in America and all these, you know, my classmates are just the most accomplished human beings I have ever met. And when you talk to people, whether that's people, you know, in the project or people, you know, in this classroom, what I found was that I can actually, there's pieces of everyone that I can relate to. I can relate to everybody's humanity and everybody is afraid Everybody has a piece of them that is afraid of being judged or not good enough. Everyone, all of us, even the people that I'm looking at going, oh my God, they have a piece of them that feels like they're not good enough. And I think that I didn't know that. I didn't know that these people who I was apparently a part of, no idea, right? These people... I w- I didn't know that they they had insecurities too or they didn't you know they worried about whether or not they were good enough or all those things and I think a lot of that stuff for me drove me feeling different and drove the addiction because I was further and further and further away from what it was I was supposed to be right because I grew up with knowing I was supposed to be something you know you were talking about that we were talking about that in the beginning with the little kids I grew up being told I was special, I was smart, and I was going to be something and that I could do whatever I wanted. And I was told that over and over and over again. And so I was like, well, shit, I'm not going to live up to that. I can't do it. What if I can't do it? What if I can't be something? What if I can't do it all? What if I can't live up to that? And so for me, it was a burden. It felt like a burden. Uh, because I didn't think I could do it. Wow, that's amazing. So, I mean, you, the expectations were so high for you. It caused you to feel like you can't, you can't, you can't reach that bar. And How could you? You know, how do you, how do you pa- surpass, yeah. how do you surpass that, right? What do you do that's bigger than, than that, than what everyone else has done? 
And my situation was kind of the opposite. Nobody thought I could. Right. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's, but what's interesting is that that's what drove me. So I, I don't, I can't imagine actually being in your circumstances where everybody has such all these high expectations. Now don't get me wrong. I mean, my, you know, my parents, they, they hope for the best, but you know, neither one right. of them were like, you know, graduates from college. So they, you know, I remember when I just decided I wanted to go to Wharton. My mother was the secretary in the district attorney's office in uh, the county county court up in Westchester in White Plains. And she told some of her, you know, people, you colleagues, know, yeah, yeah, colleagues, they were, you know, some of the attorneys up there, the prosecutors, and that uh, her son was sick, came home and said he wanted to go to Wharton. And, and she said they all kind of told her that they should, she, she should talk to me because that, that probably wasn't a realistic goal. And I remember when she spoke to wow. me, she says, you know, Chucky, you might want to consider other schools. And she mentioned a few schools that were in, in, in the, in the eyes of the people she worked with, that was more realistic for me. Right. And, and she they, meant, they she didn't. meant well, she, she was trying to help. Yeah. Right. And I, but, and I remember distinctly, I told, I said, well, I, I says, there is no other school. So you know, if you don't have anything positive to say about this, then I would appreciate it if you just don't say anything at all, because I'm going to work. And then right. I remember I, I worked at Abraham and Strauss. I was a sales rep, which was later acquired by Macy's. And I remember reading the Wall Street Journal on the train one day going home from White Plains uh, to uh, back to Tuckahoe. And some of the managers, you know, was after the store closed. Some of the managers that worked in the store were on the same train in the same car. And one of them noticed I was reading the Wall Street Journal and asked me, what, you know, what's going on? Why are you reading the journal? So I told him, I says, well, you know, I'm at the community college now. And, you know, my professor says I need to learn how to read the journal, especially if I want to go to Wharton, which is my plan. And, and I never forget. He looked at me and he said, Wharton, did you say Wharton? I said, yes. And then he turned to, to, the, to the friends and he said, this kid thinks he's going to Wharton. And they said, what? And they all started laughing. They thought this was the wow. biggest joke that this kid thinks he's going to Wharton. Wow. That still stands out in my mind. That's and, so intense. And I, I, I so that just kind of pushed me even more because yeah. I, I just felt like, okay, I'm going to show these people, man. Yeah. I'm going to show all the doubters, all the naysayers. Yeah. When I get to Wharton and when I get there, I'm going to come back to this to to Abraham and yeah. Strauss and I'm yep. going to go shopping and mm-hmm. I'm going to say hello to all of the people that I know. And they're yep. all going to say, wow, how's it going at Wharton? Yep. That's amazing. And so what what has your life looked like as a person in recovery and having shown yourself that you could do all these things? What have you done since then? So most of my work today is through business schools and executive education. Mm-hmm. So Henley Business School, which is a London-based business school that has a campus in South Africa. I do quite a bit of work with, with them. Um, I do a little bit with Duke uh, Corporate Education, which is a, a separate wing of Duke University, and uh, some of the local schools down here as well. And then, of course, I do my own consulting and coaching, executive coaching, and a, a big part of the work that I do is to really help people, the, the leaders in organizations, develop their stories. 
Right. So I, I'll tell my story, what I call my heroin to harvest story. And then my question is, what is your story? And what does that story mean to you? So the same way you talk about how you always felt like there was a, an, an advantage that you had over the people that you went to school with in terms of your emotional depth that they mm-hmm. were lacking because they didn't have that experience that you had going through drug rehab. And I o- often felt the same way as well. It was a lot easier for me to speak to my feelings, to express my feelings, mm-hmm. uh, to be authentic, mm-hmm. if you will, and to speak about my past experiences. And what I found is that people are, will often hide those experiences. So the same way I lied to Peter, you know, people at Peter's level lie to everybody around them as well, right? So everybody has a, an experience that they don't want people to know about. And a big part of uh, uh, the authentic leadership uh, program at Harvard Business School is, is helping leaders to, to take those crucible moments, what they call crucible mm-hmm. moments in their lives, and make sense out of them. Because it's not what happened that is the story. It's, right. it's what you learned how from what happened. It's how what happened made you a better person, right? So when you talk about right. your emotional depth, that's the advantage that comes from the drug um, experience oh, and yeah? getting off the drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And I had the same experience. So I take that and I use that experience in order to, to create experiences for people that I coach, for people that I work with in executive education programs to be able to basically do what we did. Um, I, I remember when I used to go to Renaissance um, before they closed down and, and, and talk with the people who were in treatment there. And I would share my story and engage them and try to inspire them. And they would ask me, so what do you do, Charles? And I says, well, I, 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 to, to, to simplify it, I, I say, I do Renaissance in, in six days. So I have a program <laughs> that I've developed that will unfold over a period of months in six days. And they, and they would say, really, can you, can you help me in six days so I can get out of this place? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, I would have said the same thing, but that's it. You know, everything I learned about emotional intelligence and they didn't call it that, but that's what it was, right? The ability to, to identify and control your emotional responses, uh, to situations, uh, the discipline that we had to develop to get through that. I teach people how to do that, right? how to develop healthy relationships, uh, you know, the importance of listening to people. So when we were in groups and when we were talking about our experience, uh, you also had to listen and, 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 and zoom in on other people's experiences, right? Um, right? So listening became an important part of that. So, you know, the things that I learned going through this experience at, at uh, being on heroin and getting to Harvard, I share those lessons in the work that I do with people. So I have a masterclass. I call it the Harold to Harvard masterclass. And it's, and it's tight. It's, you know, it's focused. And how did you, um, how did you get to Johannesburg? When I was a student at, at Harvard, I made friends uh, from there. I took a class actually at the Kennedy school in my second year on the history of race and politics in South Africa. So I was interested in what was going on during that apartheid period. I had, Mm -hmm. you know, tried to make my contribution to heightening people's awareness. Even as a student at Harvard, I was doing things um, around the anti-apartheid movement. And Mm -hmm. some of my friends that I made from South Africa invited me to come down and visit and work on a project in Zululand. And it was, awesome. it wasn't, there was no money attached to it. 
But I knew I didn't want to go back to Wall Street, and I was looking for something, which I did not know what the something was. So when I was offered this opportunity, I decided to go for it and then see what happens. And I went to Zululand and, you know, everything. I just fell in love with the place and the people. And I decided, wow, this this could be home of all the places I had been in the world. Yeah. Actually, all over Africa, Asia, Middle East, South America, you, you name it, Caribbean. There was no place that I felt that was home the way I did when I came to South Africa. And then, you know, wasn't I couldn't move at the time, but I was able to to make that decision that this is my next vision. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, the opportunity came and I was able to to capitalize on that. And ultimately, I moved. And, you know, a couple of years after I got here, I started doing the work that I do. You know, initially it was around diversity because obviously that was an issue after apartheid. Imagine what that was like, huh? Uh, trying to bring white and black South Africans together after apartheid. I mean, immediately after apartheid. So this was crazy, but I was able to to come in and uh, create some programs and facilitate uh, some programs that work like a charm. And, And you know what? Oftentimes it was getting people to open up the same way we had to open up when we were in drug programs. So the same way, the barriers broke down between, uh, say, black people and white people because I, I, the program I went in, it was it was mixed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was no black program or white program. We were all thrown <laughs> right. in together and from different right. worlds, right? And there were racial issues in the seventies, if you recall. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, this this was a sixties, seventies civil rights era, black power movement. You know, there was always a racial issue, and when we got into this drug program. It's not like we all of a sudden didn't see race, right? but it didn't take long when we began to reveal our true selves to each other, when we began to put, you know, the egos and the images to the side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and then we just connected. I mean, it was incredible. And, you know, literally we, we were like brothers and sisters. So I took that experience to South Africa, you know, and it was, it was always amazing when people started, started to share their narratives in their stories, you know, whether it was a black South African talking about their experience on one side of apartheid and a white South African on the other side of apartheid. And they're both together and sharing those experiences, the, 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 the barriers between them would melt away every single time. And the humanity would then take over. Yeah. That's incredible. I love South Africa. I love South Africa. If it weren't so freaking far away from my family and my husband and I, we went to spend time in Cape Town and oh my gosh, just the heart of the people too. Just all of it. I just, I don't know. There's something about it. It's magical. Yep. It's my favorite place on the planet earth. Well, so where, so people can find you on heroinetoharvard.com. Is that that's correct. Yes. Okay. And you're doing masterclass. I saw you have a bunch of different coaches and masterclasses on heroin to Harvard. You have other different types of executive coaching on your site. Yes, that's correct. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It's been super fun. It's been a real pleasure, Ashley. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.